You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 78. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. All right, you have reached another Local Maximum. Good thing I wasn't planning a tech news episode because it's been a slow news month. In that regard, maybe we're in a summer slumber. This is Max Sklar. I am... Finally back home from Ukraine after traveling for two weeks. I spent the first week in Lviv, Ukraine, teaching a course called Bayesian Thinking for Applied Machine Learning. And as I pointed out to Aaron a couple episodes ago, I was shocked to learn that so many students signed up for my course. You'd like, you know, you'd think that the name of the course would scare people away. Bayesian thinking for applied machine learning. You know, what's that? These are people who are in a data science summer school, so they know about machine learning. And I, I think I think the reason why they all signed up, I think it's the focus on the Bayesian approach. You know, not the Bayesian approach per se, not that they, uh, you know, say, oh, I really like that approach and I want to learn more about it. It's just, um, you know... It's the idea that you're going to learn a certain way of thinking, a certain way to approach problems, and then you're learning about from about it with a specific point of view with respect to problem solving. I think that appeals to people. And then you can agree with that point of view. You could disagree with it. You can debate it and form personal opinions. I think it's a much more engaging way to learn about things than just a collection of facts and technique. Um, and, uh, and I think that's why a lot of people signed up and, uh, and enjoyed the class and thankfully uh, enjoyed l- listening to what I have to say, which is, you know, I shouldn't be surprised. A lot of people listen to this podcast because you out there are, are interested in this topic as well. And in fact, talking about, uh, you know, just about uh, you know, learning just a collection of facts and stuff, one of the criticisms of all these data science boot camps for example, is that they're just giving people merely a list of techniques, kind of a toolkit that will be out of date in a few years. They just want to know what button to push and get out of there. And without these deeper insights into how the magic actually works underneath the hood, the students aren't going to be as successful. And I can see both sides of it. Even the term under the hood kind of refers to an automobile. I have no freaking clue what goes on under the hood of an automobile. I know that there's an engine that burns gasoline. I know that it needs to be oiled occasionally. I think that there was something called a carburetor on classic cars that doesn't exist anymore. But I I really have no idea what goes on to, under the hood, and it doesn't stop me from driving or anything. I don't know. Maybe if I owned a car, I would know more. So open question, can you do data science uh, that is, can you build statistical models, draw conclusions without knowing what's going on under the hood? In this case, in, in my opinion, it helps to have a lot more knowledge because you're not really the car driver. You're more like the car uh, builder, the car engineer. And if you're going to draw conclusions from data or build a machine that learns from data, you might want to know the reasoning behind why it works and that way you could build new things and diagnose pro- uh, problems. And probably most importantly, you can find the right tool for the right job. Um, so anyway, and, and t- today's 
uh, we're going to dive more into this today, but I just want to let you know it's not just for data scientists. I'm trying to make this more general. But anyway, I would say that the class was very successful. If anything, the students wanted more time for me to teach them, and I wanted more time. I kind of felt like at first I thought nine hours wasn't going to be enough, and then I realized that nine hours was too much. Uh, But that's because uh, opposite. Nine hours was... I had too much to fit into nine hours. I, it was also hard to get it at the right level, too, with all people from different backgrounds. But all the topics I brought up were fascinating, and I want to share some of it with you today. I broke the class up into three parts. The first day, I did some of the motivation behind Bayesian thinking. You know, why do we want to learn this? And this is what I want to share a little bit with you today. Then on the second day, we jumped into some of the math, and there was kind of a shock going from the first day with no math into like a total math class on the second day. But in Ukraine, they can kind of deal with this a lot better than we in America can, I think. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go into the math stuff today uh, or ever, I think, on this podcast. Uh, uh, But uh, maybe I'll have other materials for that. And then uh, the final day, the final three hours I spent on applications, uh, like uh, causality, Markov chain, Monte Carlo, and all those, and then uh, you know had Python, PyMC three probabilistic program. A lot of that thing I had to go by really, really fast because um, you know because there, there was a lot to say there. Uh, when I was at the summer school, so there were morning classes and there were afternoon classes. I had the three hours in the morning. And other people had three hours in the afternoon. There were multiple classes going on at a time. I also peeked into some of the other classes and and spoke to some of the instructors. And I found some good ones, including there was one on conversational design, conversational AI. So that's like chatbots, which you know I have a particular interest in. And then also another one on fairness and interpretability, which is a big topic these days when it comes to machine learning and and product development in general. So maybe I'll ask some of these instructors to come on the program and to share their point of view on these very important subjects. Uh, also, Tassos uh, Nulis gave a, uh, a, a course on urban data scientists, but of course he's already been on the program on episode 71. So that was all around a great time. The rest of my trip I spent, well, in Lviv, I took a few tours of that. I toured the old city, uh, the Jewish quarter, the uh, the part that was more Austrian-influenced uh, because it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then I took a six-hour train to Kiev, and I wasn't sure how that was going to go, being on a train for six hours. Turned out it was fine. I slept most of the time. I didn't even feel like I was on the train and I did a bunch of tours in that area as well, including a couple towns where my Sklar ancestors were from. And of course, I used Foursquare. You know, on the last day, I had to find, I saw an interesting uh, restaurant where you have to have a secret code to get in. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go there. But on my last day, I was kind of tired. I said, you know what? Um, I don't want to go travel far to get dinner. I'm just going to find a nearby place that's uh, reasonably high rated on Foursquare. So I found the highest rated place that was within a 10 minute walk of my hotel. I walked into that place, turned out to be the same place that I wanted to go to initially that I saw 
that I that I saw an ad for. Uh, so um, that place is pretty cool. Uh, my favorite Ukrainian place in the U.S. or here here in. Or, or I should say, one of my favorite places here in New York is Veselka, which is a Ukrainian diner. So I spoke about that a lot. Uh, so I'll get to – it's not like I have to stop eating Ukrainian food just because I got here. All right. So very fun trip. Got in yesterday. And now I am back in New York, ready to get back to work and uh, back to producing these podcast episodes and get some good guests for you. So let me just jump right in. All right. So Bayesian thinking. What's that? The mechanics of Bayesian thinking are that first you have to quantify your beliefs. So you kind of know what a belief is, sort of, but quantifying it is a bit of a mystery. I guess if you want to get technical, we say that it's a probability measure over a hypothesis space. But hey, that's more of a technical mathematician way of looking at it. Just think about it as a description of beliefs. Then you look at the world, you gather data. And then you update your beliefs. You still have the same sort of framework for describing the beliefs, but it's now changed because of the data that you saw. And Bayes' rule, of course, tells you it's a very simple rule. Um, it's just you know multiplication, kind of adding your beliefs together uh, or multiplying your beliefs together. I should say combining them together. And it sort of tells you how to take your beliefs, take the new data, and then form your new beliefs. So... If you tell someone, I'm being a good Bayesian right now, that kind of means that you're updating your beliefs in light of new information. So it seems pretty rational. It seems pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a lot to be said about this framework. In fact, it's one of the five frameworks or ideologies behind artificial intelligence, according to Pedro Domingo's book on the subject, Master Algorithm, which was, for me, interesting because it had these sort of uh, five separate frameworks, uh, and, and Bayesian is one of them. Um, even though I am a Bayesian, I do recognize that it has its limits uh, when it comes to learning an AI um, and gathering information. So let's start where I started in the class which is to think about episode 21 of Local Maximum. Uh, and the, the title of that episode was Probability, Belief, and the Truth. And I asked the class to take five minutes to define those things. And we came back, we did a you know, kind of a, a group discussion, and they came back with their definitions. One of the themes is that belief is individual and truth is universal. So there's kind of this idea that there is this truth out there and our beliefs are kind of an attempt to get at that truth, but may or may not be in accordance to it. So that would make belief something that is subjective, in other words, person by person, and then truth is something that is objective. There, there's only one of them. Now, probability is a little bit tougher. Probability has a lot of definitions. There's the frequentist definition, which is the proportion of an event occurring in repeated experiments. That's kind of a mouthful. Uh, I'm not completely dismissive of the frequentist point of view, but I really think that this definition of probability is way too restrictive. Uh, maybe I could debate that someday if someone thinks, no, that's the proper way to define probability. <laughs> if you want to be the one to do it with me, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Reach out. love to do it. Um, so uh, another definition of probability is kind of degree of belief. So 
you're not taking one you want to form an opinion a belief on some topic but you're not really going to completely take one side or another you're going to kind of hedge your bets you know this side might be right or that side might be right i don't know usually at least in my opinion you want to consider probability to be subjective in that regard because if it's a degree of belief then it's going to be different from one person to another uh, but I should point out that's a controversial statement. A lot of people want probability to be objective. Specifically, frequentists consider probability to be an objective thing in the world, although there are some Bayesians that consider it objective as well. Uh, They want there to be an exact right answer to what the probability is. And yes, it's true that in certain toy problems, which usually involve dice or decks of cards or things like that, There's an objective right answer to probability that all people should agree on. But then again, you know, when thinking about beliefs, there are certain beliefs everyone should have. There are certain problems where everyone should agree in their beliefs as to the right answer of that problem as well. So I use kind of the flat earthers always as an example. Should all people looking at the data available to them today agree that the earth is not a flat circular disk? Well, Of course, Uh, but it's still subjective in that everyone needs to come to that conclusion. And surprisingly, some people do not, or maybe not surprisingly, uh, given the state of the world these days. But everybody should agree, you know, that they are not emperor of the world, but who knows, maybe you can go outside and find someone who believes that they are emperor of the world. I don't know if it would, I would have to travel too far to find someone like that. Maybe I go down here in Brooklyn and I could, you know, interview a few crazy people and I'll probably find someone like that. So the problem is, okay, fine. People have weird beliefs and they have weird assignments of probability, but there should be kind of an objectively right response, shouldn't there be? I would argue that in a few simple cases, yes, you know, like uh, throwing dice, but actually... Uh, According to Bayesian statistics, there's always some wiggle room to say, no, there isn't an objectively right answer, even though reasonable people might come close to each other. um, But uh, there isn't one objective response. That's something that Bayesian thinkers have to contend with. And it's a big reason, I think, why the theory didn't take off as the foundation of statistics and frequentists did as well. And it didn't take off as the foundation of the scientific method, really, because that's what it is. Uh, you know, Bayes' rule is a quantification of the scientific method, but that's not how scientists saw it for a long time, because it started with existing beliefs that introduced bias, and it's therefore unscientific. And the mistake they make, and this is sort of getting into a philosophy called empiricism, is kind of, well, all knowledge has to come from the data. Which is a nice idea in theory. You know, I am going to be totally data-driven, and that's how I'm going to form my beliefs. But it actually doesn't work in practice, and it has some foundational issues because you need to know stuff before you could even describe or understand data. So in my first slide about this in the course, I asked about the nature of truth and facts. Um, And I started with uh, philosopher René Descartes in the 17th century. Uh, And there's a big word here that's epistemology, 
which is the theory of knowledge. Epistemology is kind of like, how do we know what's true and what isn't true? That's sort of a word. It's one of those scary words that um, you try not to mention in podcasts or radio shows, but you kind of have to sometimes. Um, so we have all this knowledge. We have all this beliefs. We act on beliefs every day. So how do we justify them? And so Rene Descartes' famous statement, uh, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, sort of says, okay, uh, well, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm pondering these questions right now. Therefore, I at least know that I exist. Um, and, you know, that's great. But how do we know everything else that we know? Because there's a lot of other stuff available. I've argued on the show. And I don't know which uh, episode this is. It was a more recent episode. Let me see if I can head to the archive. But I believe that all of our beliefs, or the vast majority of our uh, conscious beliefs, come from... uh, Yes, this was episode 57, the one on data science analogies and nearest neighbors. I believe that our conscious beliefs, at least, and many of our unconscious beliefs as, as well, come from the argument by analogy. So we observe, we make observations, we observe something to happen, and then something new comes along and we say, okay, this situation is a lot like that old situation, so maybe a similar thing is going to happen. Um, So again, I think this is probably the most common form of consciously forming beliefs. You take something you've seen in the past, make an analogy to the situation you're facing now, and draw a conclusion. Uh, In fact, Argument by analogy is another one of uh, Pedro Domingo's five philosophies of AI, which um, is, I personally, I think that every machine learning algorithm is an algorithm by analogy, but one of them, you know, some of them are, uh, draw from that philosophy more than others. Um, a great example of argument by analogy that I found in, uh, in a TV show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, that uh, that I played that this clip is it's really funny, but it is actually a great example of argument by analogy. So what happened was Larry David asks his uh, psychologist or his therapist, like why he got charged for an hour for a three minute conversation. And the therapist says, well, I have this other client who, by the way, directed Star Wars, who sees prostitutes for only a few minutes and still pays the hour. And the response by Larry David is, A, what are you saying about me? Why am I hearing about this? And B, like, oh, so that's the analogy you want to use for this. So I think that's, I think that's argument by analogy, but I also think that's a statement on the problems of uh, data anonymization as well. So Okay, great. I know I think. How do I know that everybody else thinks or everybody else is, has a, is like a conscious human being? I think that's you have a very strong argument to believe that with argument by analogy. I don't think uh, the, uh, the, there's a good case to be, be made, well, I'm the only one in this world who's conscious. There just isn't because of argument by analogy. So let's talk a little bit more about the nature of truth and facts. I, I, another thing that I mentioned on the show, particularly in that episode 21 about probability belief in the truth, is that questions, most questions only have estimated answers. So the a- example I gave is the number of water molecules in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, you can look at the approximate area of the Atlantic Ocean and the approximate average depth 
and average pressure and probably give me an estimate as to the number of water molecules in there. But is there really a number N such that N is the number of water molecules in the Atlantic Ocean at any particular point in time and N plus one would be wrong and N minus one would be wrong even though they're close? Probably not. Probably because you could never define uh, you know, the boundaries of the ocean and there are probably quantum effects that uh, you know, tell us, well, this molecule can be both in and out of the ocean at the same time. I don't know. So um, even though the question is crazy, if you think about it in terms of an exact answer, it makes a lot of sense in terms of an estimated answer. And I think most knowledge is like this. Most knowledge is not a description, is not a complete description of the world, only a partial description of the world. And then another question we have to ask about the nature of truth is, can we separate action and decisions from beliefs. I think there's a tendency to want to do that. There's a tendency to want to say, okay, I'm going to form a belief regardless of what action I'm going to take from that belief. So that's sort of what Bayes' rule is all about, right? I'm just forming beliefs based on the data, and then I could take action on that later, but I'm not thinking about that. But oftentimes, the action that you're taking and the belief that you're forming kind of go hand in hand, mainly because the information that you're seeking is related and the models that you're running are kind of have to be related. And then the hypotheses you're coming up with are all related to the actions that you're eventually going to have to take. So what forces ensure that our beliefs align with our true, uh, you know, so causal connections? There's kind of like natural selection. There's natural language, which is describing things, maybe imprecisely, but practically. And there's formal language. Hey, I'm all for formal language, logic. It describes things precisely, but not always practically. Natural language is our go-to. We humans started with natural language and then went to formal language, not the other way around. So sometimes you have to be imprecise, but practical. And natural selection predates all of that, where it's like, you know, uh, you know there are several types of organisms and they each have a theory as to what's going to, you know, who's going to survive in the world. And then, you know, some of them die. Well, I guess, uh, I guess they were wrong. And then uh, the ones that have the right causal connections, which is, hey, I know if I do this, then good things will happen. And if I do this other thing, then bad things will happen. And so therefore, I'm going to take the first option. Uh, those organisms survive. And then finally, we have, so we have formal language. And then we have kind of uh, formal logic, which would be more like um, on the upper end, which is sort of documenting true statements and kind of weeding out the contradictions. So all of these things have to exist before you even get to Bayes' rule and Bayesian thinking, um, So, w- which means that Bayesian thinking doesn't, is not the foundation, but it's a very powerful tool. Um, now, because I was in Lviv, I wanted to highlight a couple people who were born there um, and had something to say on the topic. And I want to expand on this a little bit. Uh, so uh, a couple of these people were the von Mises brothers. Now, uh, so some of you might know uh, Ludwig von Mises. He um, was born in 1881 in the city that was then called Lemberg in the Austrian Empire, which today is called Lviv. It's had many names. Um, and he became a free market economist. He's the author of a big book called Human Action. And so uh, he had 
something to say on this topic. And the description from Wikipedia is, man acts to dispel feelings of uneasiness, but can only succeed in acting if he comprehends the causal connections between the ends that he wants to satisfy and the available means. So it's interesting. I think a lot of the economics that we learn in school, we sort of say, okay, humans are trying to, like firms are trying to maximize their uh, profit or their present value profit. And humans are trying to, or economic agents are trying to maximize their utility. And they're trying to get the perfect, you know, basket of goods. But uh, I think that uh, Ludwig von Mises starts with a more basic premise and says, no, you know, people are starting with, uh, you know, actions and beliefs. And specifically, uh, those beliefs are in the form of causal connections. If I do A, then X will happen. And if I do B, then Y will happen. I don't know if I, yeah, choosing those two ends of the alphabet were baby. Maybe it's better to say, if I choose chose A, then B will happen. And if I choose C, then D will happen. Either case. Um, you kind of have those beliefs, and then you take action on those beliefs. You might be right or you might be wrong. But, hey, human beliefs are a big part of the puzzle when doing economic analysis. Now, what's really interesting is that he had a little brother, Richard, Richard von Mises, also you know, born in the same place, and they both ended up in the United States. Uh, Ludwig von Mises ended up at NYU here in New York, and Richard von Mises became a... Harvard professor, actually a statistician, Harvard University. Um, so uh, Ludwig von Mises, I think, takes a lot of his probabilistic um, work from his brother. Uh, it's always interesting when you have two brothers who are both kind of at the top of their economic, uh, top of the top, top, top of an academic field. You know, smart family. Uh, they had. Uh, disagreements on some issues, but I think that um, Ludwig would have said, "Like, hey, Richard, you're probably the expert on probability, so I'm going to borrow from you." And they weren't. It's kind of unclear where they stood on the Bayesian frequentist spectrum. Uh, I think most um, statisticians at the time were frequentists, so they probably leaned more in that direction. Although there is some evidence that they were at times more Bayesian. I mean, you know, if Ludwig von Mises is going to make his entire uh, theory of human action on belief as one of the central uh, areas there, then wouldn't probability always apply to belief? That sounds really interesting. Also, Richard von Mises made some big contributions to Bayesian statistics. Uh, the first one would be something called... Uh, what would I pull this up here? All right, the Bernstein von Mises theorem. And what that says is that in certain circumstances, if two people start with very different beliefs, very different priors, but they're both exposed to the same evidence, and then more and more and more evidence comes in, then those two rational people, both using Bayes' rule, should start to converge in their beliefs. In other words, they'll start to become... Um, their their beliefs on the topic will start to become more similar. So that's good to know. It's not always true, but it's true in certain 
good situations, which I'll get to in a minute. Another thing that he has, he has actually a probability distribution named after him. It's called the von Mises distribution, and it is a family of probability distributions on a circle or a probability distribution over direction. So let's say I tell you I'm pointing in a random direction or what direction is the car pointed in, and you don't really know uh, but you want to form a probability distribution based off that. Von Mises distribution uh, does that, so quantifies uncertainty over a direction. You might, you know, that's an interesting idea because we often have uncertainty over a rate of thing, uncertainty over a count, uncertainty over, you know, is it going to be a red card or a black card, things like that. But uh, direction is often a very important piece of the puzzle in mathematics and in physics, and so. Uh, that was also a contribution as well. Interestingly enough, another well-known economist, John Maynard Keynes, uh, who would be kind of Mises's arch rival, I guess, or you know the opposite points of view, because uh, von Mises was very free market, and John Maynard Keynes is you know very economic interventionist. Uh, he also wrestled with Bayesian theory and accepted parts of it, um, but rejected other parts. Again, he got stumped on priors, as a lot of people do. How could you have prior beliefs, you know, and, and still say that you're scientific? Um, so a lot of work has been done on prior beliefs, and maybe I could probably do a whole, I'll probably do a whole show on that. Um, one of the scientists that worked on this early on was Harold Jeffries. He wrote a book called Theory of Probability, and he wrote a lot about priors and what to do about them and whether they can be objective or not. So, okay. Um, the, so we have these beliefs. We're using Bayes' rule. We're using argument by analogy. One thing that I want to think about as well is, is an argument by analogy valid? So I just gave you the example, other human beings are conscious just like I am because I I, you know, I, I see so many similarities between myself and them. Uh, I'm about to roll a dice. Is this dice roll going to be similar to other dice rolls that I've observed in the past? Um, so I think in general, yes. Um, the argument by analogy only requires a single assumption, and that assumption is that there exists some sort of regularity in the universe. So Picture the picture that you're doing, you're analyzing a photo, right? Um, in a photo, if you have access to some pixels, then it tells us information about the other pixels. For example, if you take a, take a photo, for the last photo you took on your iPhone, if I remove a single pixel from that photo, I could probably guess what color that pixel is to a pretty high degree of accuracy just by looking at the pixels around it. Because let's say you took a picture of someone and you know the pixel that was removed, the little dot that was removed was uh, on their shirt. Well, you already know the color of their shirt, so you kind of think that pixel would be that color. Now, it's not always true. Sometimes you get a wild pixel. Sometimes you're on the boundary. Sometimes you, know, you don't know. But I think by and large, it's true. Uh, you know, what would a photo look like if that weren't true, what would a photo look like if you couldn't tell uh, if you couldn't tell what a pixel uh, you you didn't have any information about uh, the pixels 
uh, given the other pixels. Well, essentially, it would mean that every pixel in the photo would be a random color picked from some probability distribution. So in other words, it would be a mess, a static mess um, of some sort. Any distribution over colors will do. Obviously, having access to more pixels will give you more information as to what that distribution is, but it's not like it tells you more information about one side of the photo or the other. Um, And so the photo would be completely uninteresting. The picture would be completely uninteresting. It's not really a photo because no photo of the real world would look like that, but the the computerized image. So um, I think that obviously photos make sense. Uh, The world has some things in it that make sense, some things in it that doesn't make that, that don't make sense. And so I'm not saying that the entire world makes sense. I'm just saying that the world sometimes makes sense. And that's the argument by analogy. Uh, the whole thing I bring up is, you know, Einstein, when talking about quantum physics, says he doesn't believe God plays dice. In other words, you know, there's nothing that's truly random out there. Like, uh, you know, uh, there, there's kind of a Newtonian view of the world where, no, however the world is set up, we're, we're kind of destined to go in a certain direction. Well, in other, in, it doesn't matter what you think on that question, whether there's a lot of randomness in the universe or not much. Um, the idea is there are some rules. Come on, you have to believe that. If you don't believe that, then there's A, nothing you could believe, but B, like, how are you even listening to this podcast? Because language has some rules so that you could understand it, so then you wouldn't be able to understand or engage in conversation or anything. You wouldn't exist. So argument by analogy works sometimes, but there are, of course, bad analogies. So then the argument becomes, am I engaging in a good analogy or am I engaging in a bad analogy? So... We uh, then we start making analogies of analogies, and why not analogies of analogies of analogies, and so on and so forth. So the argument never ends. Argument by analogy doesn't really tell us what's true and what's not. It just gives us a framework to get started. Um, and of course, the best machine learning algorithm that illustrates argument by analogy, I think, would be K nearest neighbors. Actually, I think that's the one that is uh, mentioned in. Uh, Pedro Domingo's book, Master Algorithm. So I'll probably post that up. It's been a while since I read that, but I have a lot of good examples from that today. So expanding to probabilities, that was a little bit about how we get at the truth. First, instead of formally knowing facts now, we want to keep in mind several possible answers along with their relative likelihood. And there are benefits of doing that, but there are also drawbacks of doing that. The benefits of doing that is that we can make better decisions overall. But the drawbacks of doing that is that there's more mental overhead, or from kind of a machine perspective, there's more memory, there's more code complexity. So you don't always want to do this. Sometimes you want to rely on just listing facts. Sometimes you just want to rely on natural language. Sometimes you just want to rely on your instincts. Uh, But in some cases, you do want to expand to probabilities. So my conclusion here is not all beliefs should be considered as probabilities, but upgrading a belief from a singular statement to a probabilistic one can bring a whole lot of value if you do it strategically in the right places. So you have the development of Bayesian inference, and I've gone over it a lot in the program. I went over it in episode zero. Uh, and more, there's actually, a, I did a much, uh, a really good episode 
on the origin of Bayes' rule. Let me see what it was. I think it might have been, yes, uh, it was episode 22, Bayes' rules, uh, death to p-hacking. That was a very good episode. Um, But the short story is, you had Thomas Bayes, lived in the 18th century, Presbyterian minister in Scotland. So his Bayes' rule, which was kind of, you know, reverse probability, you know, you have your prior, those are your prior beliefs, then you have your likelihood, those, that's your data, and you combine that to create posterior new beliefs. His motivation, we're not entirely sure. I think the speculation was he was trying to understand, the, you know, the nature of God, and he was trying to understand theological arguments, um, and he was trying to quantify them because he was, you know, not, he, he was also kind of a math uh, enthusiast. He was a mathematician. Um, but the mathematician who really put the pedal to the metal here was uh, Pierre Simon Laplace in the, uh, you know, in the early 19th century, I believe, and put together the foundation of Bayesian inference. Um, so let's, Bayesian thinking kind of sounds really great, but what are some of the limitations? So let's talk about that real fast before before signing up. So first of all, we need both a prior and data for Bayes' rule to work. And there is no objective way to come up with a prior. Uh, a lot of people have tried. There are good priors. There are bad priors. Um, Jeffries, as I mentioned before, in the 1930s, he had some really, he did a lot of thinking on priors, but um, when it comes down to it, there really is no objective way to come up with them. And so that is something that Bayesians need to contend with. Secondly, two people might be in agreement on the application of Bayes' rule. They both might say, okay, Bayes' rule is a great way to come to a conclusion. And they might be in agreement on the data that they have, but they uh, so they might be getting the same information, but they could have started with different priors, and therefore uh, that will lead to different conclusions. Now we do have that Bernstein von Mises theorem that says that eventually they'll tend towards the same conclusion, but that only happens in certain situations, uh, which I'll get to in a second. So third, Bayes' rule is really great at distinguishing the relative probability between different hypotheses. So I think that uh, I, I have a bunch of different uh, – I'm, I'm looking at a phenomenon, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out which of these causes is the true cause. And as I gather more data, I get more information on that. But the hypothesis space is incomplete, uh, either on purpose to simplify the model or because maybe there's an answer there that we haven't considered, we haven't come up with. Bayes' rule does not help you have a better imagination of what the answer to the problem might be. So that's another limitation, is that you have to have a good way of coming up with hypotheses, um, and Bayes' rule doesn't help with that. Four, uh, there's sort of a normalizing constant in Bayes' rule that can be intractable. It's kind of related to the cursed dimensionality. And so... There are a few problems. There could be a finite hypothesis space with an astronomical number of possibilities. Think about like the number of configurations of a Rubik's Cube, or think about um, the number of configurations of a deck of cards. Hey, it seems pretty reasonable 
if I'm trying to learn about a deck of cards and I want to know what the configuration of that is, well, there's 52 factorial possibilities there. In fact, in episode four, when I was uh, decoding uh, text with Aaron, he took the 27 characters, all 26 letters plus the space, and permuted them, uh, you know, uh, shuffled them so that, you know, A mapped to some other letter and B mapped to some other letter and so on and so forth. And uh, it turns out that there are 27 factorial, 27 times 26 times 25 and so on possibilities, which is a huge, huge, huge number. So you can't go through all of them. So that is something that um, Bayes' rule doesn't help with. And then, of course, when you have sort of these continuous spaces that mathematicians and machine learning engineers like, like you know, 30-dimensional real number space, there's no tractable way to integrate. So there are some, obviously those have been solved to some degree, or not solved completely, but there are ways of fixing it. In episode four, we used uh, a hill climbing example to solve the problem of uh, decoding the text of the substitution cipher that Aaron came up with. And um, for a lot of these probability distributions, these mathematical ones, there's something called Markov Chain Monte Carlo that successfully figures out you know, how, to, um, how to search the space, essentially, search the space of hypotheses. Um, so let me talk a little bit more about priors. So one problem, and this is the problem of the flat earthers, are people who will put exactly zero on one of their priors. In other words, what's the probability that the earth is not a flat disk that you could fall off the end of? Well, a flat earther will say zero. So any evidence that you give them, they're going to multiply by zero, and they're still going to get zero, and so they're still going to believe that the earth is flat. And so... In this case, the von Mises-Bernstein theorem doesn't apply. And this is a case where, fortunately, this is a fixable case. This is uh, something that a statistician named Dennis Lindley came up with called uh, Cromwell's Rule because he's an English statistician. Um, And basically, it says, always leave a little bit of probability in uh, in each of the possible answers, and then you won't run into this problem. But... There's another case where the Bernstein-Mises theorem doesn't always work, and that's when like weird things happen when infinities are involved. So if you have kind of like five different hypotheses that you're trying to determine between, yeah, then everybody, and it's like a finite number, then yeah, everybody's going to eventually agree when you have a lot of data. But when you have an infinite number and you have this weird fat tail issue, which I think uh, if you want to know more about Aaron and I discussed that on episode 27. Uh, Then you can also have issues where posteriors don't converge. So that's the gist of Bayesian thinking for today. Then in the class, I dove into two related topics in the course. The first was kind of an overview of Bayesian thought and its applications, so how it was used to crack the German codes in World War II, how it was picked up by insurance actuaries or for the U.S. Navy to find a hydrogen bomb that they lost in the 1960s. They just lost a hydrogen bomb uh, somewhere in the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain and used Bayesian search to find it. And then I got into kind of the Bayesian frequentist debate that seems to have been so vile 
among academics in the 20th century and a lot less active today. So the question is, why is that? A lot of people are interested in that. Uh, a lot of people want to know. So maybe I'll have a whole our, uh, episode on that. And then the next topic we covered was all on priors. How do you form a prior belief uh, uh, to use in Bayes' rule when you don't know anything about the problem or you know something about the problem, but your knowledge is kind of fuzzy? That's a really interesting topic. It's probably a dark art, and I have a lot to say about it. Historical writers on mathematics and probability have a lot to say about that. So maybe I'll do an episode for each of those involving a co-host, especially if Aaron is interested in commenting on these, and uh, I hope he is. All right. I do have some guests lined up, but I'm hoping to, uh, you know, hit the uh, hit the emails and get some more over the next few days as I return. I'm hoping to have someone who is deep in the field of augmented in virtual reality soon, uh, coming up soon. So uh, stay tuned for that. Remember to subscribe. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.